So yes, I'm optimistic. Yes, we have the numbers. Those things will only matter if enough of us speak up. And yes, I would love to get us into a better place so I could actually get two unbroken nights sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Jasmine Clark. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. We are very excited for this 100th episode. I have my bubbly ready, ladies, for the toast to joy. Same thing. Yes. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Are you guys excited? I'm very excited. I'm excited. I'm like super excited. I can't stop smiling. I'm like my face is going to hurt by the end of this. <laughs> I'm so excited. I can't believe it. I'm just a little nervous about the live part. I'm not going to lie. So um... Amy has had to edit out some things over the last hundred episodes. <laughs> it was also fun seeing all of the guests that we've had over the last hundred episodes. It has been so fun to get to talk to all of the people, all of the guests, all of our troublemakers. And I know we've got some troublemakers on here today. So it is super fun. Yes. Yes. You know, I still face this, but I'm trying to get over it two years into this. But do you guys ever have imposter syndrome or do you still or did you ever? Uh, Yeah, still. I think that sometimes I'm like, oh, man, I feel like when we're about to talk about like one of our more difficult subjects, I'm like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And I don't know if I really am. Um, Mm -hmm. an authority on this subject to be able to really speak on it. But I think that's like the best part about this podcast is we are not here to be authorities on anything. We're just Mm -hmm. a couple of suburban moms who have, or I guess a few, a couple would be two, a few suburban moms (laughs) that um, just care about our communities and care about each other Mm -hmm. and and just want to, you know, see people be able to thrive, live and thrive without all the crazy that's been going on around us. And I think that's our listeners as well. Like everyone doesn't have to be like an expert in a field to have conversations and just know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. you're living it, you know, your perspectives. So that's a really good point. I think that's a really good point because I mean, we really try to educate a lot of these topics that we discuss. I come from zero. And, you know, when I listen to our episodes, if I haven't done the the feature interview and it's the part that I haven't listened to, I always learn something because it's, it's, you know, just, and I, I love that about the show. I mean, I, I listen to quite a few podcasts. Heather's is one of them. But I hope that we can help other regular people learn how to have a conversation with someone on a subject um, and just bring it up and talk about it because it's always something that's, you know, quite relevant to us as women, as moms, you know, and even if you do, if you don't live in a suburban area. So I, I really like that. I think as an economist, we're taught, like, if you're an economist, you probably know everything. So we come at it from like a very, uh, but I was like, oh, I didn't think about it this way. They didn't cover that in my, you know, economics lessons. Um, So I have also learned a lot on the podcast, but I think it's really fun. Like I love talking policy and I love talking policy with people who, you know, care about it. Like I care about it. Right. And I care about it as a mom and I care about it as my community. And I often don't hear a lot of politicians talk about it the way that I like to talk about policy of like, Hey, this is what I care about for my kids and my community. And this is why this really matters. Mm-hmm. And I like that we have had those conversations with each other and with all of our guests on the show. So how do y'all feel? Like, I know we've been doing this for basically two years, a hundred episodes in and like, you know, we got into this because we are the suburban women problem. We are the problem for the Republican Party. Here's my shirt. I love it. I love your shirt, Rachel. Woo! It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I can't say. <laughs> I mean, do you feel like the problem has shifted or changed at all in our last two years? Because I do. Oh, same. I feel like some things we've been talking about like the whole time, but then there are all these new things that keep popping up and I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's getting better or worse. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of things that keep popping up. Oh, there's a lot of things that keep I, <laughs> I, I think I think they're going to have enough rope to hang themselves, but only if we make it matter. And we say that mm-hmm. a lot. All these issues are only issues if 
we make it matter. And yes, that's why we have to keep talking about we it. We make it matter by educating people, by talking about yeah. it. So speaking of this Suburban Women Problem merch, um, I also ordered the sheet of stickers and it's, um, I, I love the quote. For, I love the quote for me. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, own it. You should love the quote from you. There's a reason that you said it because it's good. I just... This is what happens when it's live. I say idiotic <laughs> things, but um, no, but I, I, you know, it's like, well, even if you don't do politics, politics does you. So that's the thing. And, and I mean, we've been taught as women, we shouldn't discuss those things. It might alienate someone. We shouldn't mm. have these discussions, but everything is politics now. I mean, that's the problem is that all this is affecting our lives and especially I live in Florida now. So we, you know, if someone's uncomfortable talking about the fact that the governor doesn't want uh, anyone to say period in schools, and that shouldn't be discussed, that's only political because someone else made it political. Right. But you have to ask yourself, do I think that's okay? And it doesn't, I mean, at that point, it doesn't matter if this is political or not. You're not the one who made it political. So it's a conversation you have to have because it's going to affect you and your children, even if you have a son, that's something that, you know, very well could affect them and his friends. Oh, yeah. So if if we didn't in polite society, talk about all these things, then we are the ones that are choosing not to do it because one side is talking about them. So we have to be more comfortable. And that's the thing is when you hear these conversations, I hope, and you hear us talking and hopefully you've had a chance to attend some troublemaker training with red, white, and blue, um, you know, that you, you, kind of have those tools of how to more easily have those conversations. And by the way, it's still awkward for me. This (laughs) like Friday, I saw Amanda and Katie actually, and I was collecting signatures for, um, because Ohio is going to have a ballot or they want to have a ballot initiative to protect reproductive rights. We're trying. Yeah. And I was like with Katie collecting signatures. Katie's really good at it. And I was just like, it's still awkward for me to ask people, even though I know it's the most important thing. It never gets easy for me, guys. So please don't think it's it's like something that we just love doing. I mean, Jasmine, do you like knocking on doors? I mean, oh, I think Jasmine, you've said you did. Well, I mean, I actually <laughs> she does. I kind of do like knocking on doors, but it it is it's not the easiest thing in the world. But I do like having conversations with people because one of the things I've learned is that when you actually talk to people in person, uh, they are not as mean as they are on the internet, Mm. even if they disagree with you. Mm -hmm. But also a lot of the doors that I knock on, people are just really excited to see me, to hear from me, to talk to me. So I like it, but I will say, of course, there's always that initial trepidation, that initial anxiety about it. Um, So yeah. I am not a knock on doors person, but I do think one thing that Red Wine and Blue does well and that we have talked about is find what you're good at. And there is a way that you can use whatever you're good at for, you know, furthering a cause or finding that thing that you really love. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be knocking on doors and it doesn't even have to be talking to a stranger. In fact, it works better when you talk with your friends and your family, because they trust you, they know you and they know your heart. And it makes it so much easier to have that conversation. And I, to me, the podcast is all about having those conversations about anything we have talked about marijuana, trans kids, CRT, mm-hmm. DEI. There is no conversation we have not been willing to have. We've talked about a lot. Well, I, without further ado, I think it's a great time to bring on our very special guest, Heather Cox Richardson. She is an expert. She writes a newsletter that uh, is famous in song and story. I cannot tell you how many people have like, Oh, I read this great newsletter from this historian, <laughs> Heather Cox Richardson. I was like, oh yeah, I interviewed her for my podcast. I just want to point that out. Um, Heather is amazing. Hi, Heather. I'm laughing here. Song? It's famous in song. Song and story, yes. <laughs> my baby, she wrote me a letter, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Heather, you joined us for our very first episode back in May 2021. And here we are almost two years later. That episode, you and I talked about how we were at an inflection point in history. It's a very long inflection point, everyone. That we very long <laughs> that we could regain our democracy or lose it. So here we are, two years later. Are you feeling better or worse about our democracy? Well, that's complicated. But I want to start by saying congratulations to all of you. Thank you. Aww. Thank you. I have, you know, I have watched you grow and watched what an incredible difference you make. 
not just in the nation at large, but so much of what we're doing is trying to empower people who have previously felt as if they were not part of the public conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're so good at that. And just now when you were talking about imposter syndrome, I don't know if people could see me, I started laughing and I'll tell you why in a minute. But it is my observation that those people who throw their weight around and insist that they know everything are freaking clueless. <laughs> the people who say, wait a minute, I don't quite understand that who are the really smart ones. And, you know, like, I don't know the stuff that I write, like I have to look up who the director of national intelligence is, or I have to look up, you know, what treaties we have with someone. It's not like that's in my head. I just don't need to, I just know where to look, but I was laughing because, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, the, the, it is true that, that what I do is very popular, but don't have any great fantasies about what my life looks like because I was laughing. <laughs> I've just come back from a several day, quite important trip in a number of cities, both pro- important, both professionally and, and uh, personally. And I realized after getting all my clothes ready and all that, I got to the first hotel and I hadn't packed a hairbrush. I did the same <laughs> thing a month ago. Well, and so, so I rushed my college roommate and I'm like, this is not going to surprise you, but I didn't bring a hairbrush. And of course, I haven't had time to get my hair cut in six months. And so she's like, well, that's typical. And then the great part was three days later, as I'm going to a fancy event with my friend, Joanne Freeman, I looked at her and I said, oh, my God, I could have bought a hairbrush in all these days. (laughs) And it was on my third day of combing my hair with my fingers going, I can't believe I forgot a hairbrush. I'd even been in a Dwayne Reed to buy something else. And it never Honest to God, never occurred to me that I could actually buy a hairbrush instead of going, I shouldn't have left it behind. That's definitely <laughs> something I would do. <laughs> All that to say that this is really accessible. And anybody who tries to make it seem like it's not accessible, like there's you know geniuses out there running the show, they're trying to keep you from getting involved because mm-hmm. the truth is that all our politics is is how we live with each other and and what the government does and who it helps and who it hurts and also who pays for it. And that's something that there isn't a woman in this world who can't comprehend or a person in this world who can't comprehend as long as they're willing to spend a little bit of time thinking, hey, wait a minute here, how come they just got this and I'm the one paying for it, which is kind of what, the way we think. Absolutely. Well, you know, Heather, I am so glad that you are here today. Um, And something else that I remember from two years ago when you and Rachel were talking was about uh, the history of Mother's Day, which is surprisingly political. Um, And so since we just celebrated Mother's Day yesterday, I'd love to hear that story again about like the history of Mother's Day. So it's a great example of how everything really is political and how people who want to change that story, change it in sort of sanitize it and turn it to be about something else. The story that most people understood until people like me started writing about it was that Mother's Day had started in 1908 when Anna Jarvis wanted to celebrate her mother and started a Mother's Day um, to celebrate her own personal mother. But in fact, what Jarvis was doing was she was remembering that her her mother had participated in Mother's Days, which were plural Mother's Days, that began in the 1870s. And those are really interesting because they were started by Julia Ward Howe, who was a reformer in Boston. And she was married to a guy that I try never to name because he was totally abusive. And in fact, his nickname was, and this is kind of a play on words, was Chev, which stood for Chevalier. But In fact, in French, the word for goat is very similar to that. So I privately always refer to him as the old goat. He was really horrible to her. And every time she tried to leave him, he would say, well, that's fine. But I've I've already spent all your money. Now I'm going to take your kids. Anyway, she started to think about what it meant to be a mother. And to uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, she started to say, well, you know, women really should get the vote so we can do things like change the divorce laws so I won't lose control of my children if the old goat, sorry, that's me, um, manages to, to take them away. But she realized in after the Franco-Prussian War, which happens in the 18, early 1870s, she's like, wait a minute here, the Civil War seemed like it was worthwhile because we ended enslavement except for as a punishment for crime. But but 
then 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 the the Franco-Prussian War did it all over again for, to what end? And she thought, you know what? The way we should change world history, the way we should change world politics is for mothers to get together and say, we are no longer going to p- permit our sons and our husbands to go kill other sons and husbands. And we're going to put our feet down and we're going to stop that. So she's decided to have these meetings at the very beginning of spring when it was warm enough for people to gather outside in large gatherings. And they did for a number of years, but she pretty quickly realized that she couldn't create a global movement without changing a lot of other stuff as well. But that's the origin of Mother's Day, is it was mothers, plural, getting together to change the way the world worked, both by stopping war and by getting the vote to do that. Wow, so powerful. It reminds me a lot of like Moms Demand Action now, where you see moms doing something similar. How can we get moms to come together and unite as a collective to make the world a better place. So I remember when I was taught history in grade school, it seemed devoid of women to me. And I've said this before on the podcast, you know, to be fair, I thought the same thing about economics also seemed devoid of women to me whenever we discussed history or a lot of subjects, really. It seemed to me like as if women never played a pivotal part in politics or our country and our history, I just didn't see it the way it was taught to me. But you have changed a lot of the way I think about a lot of this with a lot of the stories that you tell about our history. What are some of the other ways that women have been important in fighting fascism throughout history? So a couple of things. One thing to remember is, and I want to go back to mothers for a minute, is that mother is a verb as well as a noun. And I don't want to exclude anybody who did not give birth to one of those screaming little loaves of bread. Uh, <laughs> but, but the idea of nurturing as opposed to dominating uh, is a really important way to approach politics. And that's something that I think women tend to do much better, um, at least under certain circumstances and in certain cultural moments than men do. So that's sort of trying to be more realistic about the way what, what it actually means for mothers to, you know, for it's people who want to nurture as opposed to dominate, I think. But, but it's important to remember in terms of the way people think about history and not including women is that men wrote those histories, first of all. Yeah. And, and one of my great examples from this is actually economics. So if you look at the ways in which women were written out of the industrial Revo- revolution, for example, at least in the United States, mm-hmm. you know, there were no women, basically. The men, I guess, just ran around doing their own thing and no children either. But in fact, most economists will tell you they do not think it was possible for the um, industrial revolution to work in the United States the way it did without the labor uh, of women that never made it onto the books. So, for example, bartering food, trading clothing, providing beds, all the things that that economists like to attach a price tag to, but in fact, um, always were the underground economy. And you hear that and you think, oh, whatever, she's talking about the 1880s. Think about baby clothes. Think about today, the underground movement, if you will, in baby clothes. You have a baby, it outgrows the clothes, you give them to somebody. You know, you don't even think that you're doing anything other than being neighborly. But in fact, that's a really big economic transfer. Mm. When my daughter was 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 born, I don't think I bought clothing for her until she was two because my friends were all like, here, take my old baby clothes, you know? Love it. So um, so just as that is an example in the in economics, women in politics have always been important. And they haven't been important because they convinced their husbands to do things. They've been important because they did things like look around and say, hey, wait a minute here, in the late 19th century again, for example, our children are dying because of the diseases in our are in the in the city streets. And, and at first they didn't really know what those were, but they did recognize that there were more flies in the neighborhoods where people, uh, where children were dying. And that there that meant that there were more there was more garbage there. So women start to become garbage inspectors, for example, and walk around behind the, the, the wagons and say, you know, we need to clean this up. And then they realize that they need to learn a lot more about working conditions and living conditions. So they start to take statistics. Now, they can't vote and they don't have any effect on machine politics in the cities in the 1880s, in the 1890s and in the early 20th century. But they start to say it's not OK for for girls to be dying, for example, in Berlin buildings and and uh, and for children to be dying because their bosses lock them into the factories that then catch fire for example so they started to take statistics and at the turn of the century the our legal system was 
based on precedent. So lawyers would get into a room and the judges would get into a room and they would argue intellectually about where the the law should come out on a certain issue. Well, that changes really dramatically with a question about whether or not the state could prescribe a maximum amount of hours for women to work. And a new uh, Supreme Court justice provided what was called uh, the Brandeis brief. And the Brandeis brief said, would you people stop talking just about the, the 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 parameters of the laws and start looking at what the world looks like. Well, in order to make people do that, he appended to the Brandeis brief a very long list of all the statistics about what life was actually like in 19th century working conditions. And who put that together? His sister-in-law, Josephine Goldmark who had been part of this whole movement. So this is a case where women were not voting. They were not, nobody was really listening to them, but they were looking around them and going, this is not okay. You know, we got to clean this up. We got to find a way to clean this up. And and by God, at least I'm going to bear witness. And having borne witness, their statistics that they collected and the connections that they made to put pressure on politicians were a key driving factor of the entire progressive movement in the early 20th century. I love that they did it with data. Can I just say, <laughs> I know, like, I like that, that is awesome. We know women aren't always listened to. So sometimes we have to bring the data. I love that. You know, speaking of lawyers sitting in a room and saying, oh, we can only do things that have a precedent. Sounds very familiar. Recently, we saw the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that is obviously one major thing that's happened since we started the podcast. It's not our fault correlation does not equal causation. Um, So (laughs) what are your thoughts about the historical connections between like reproductive rights and democracy? They're huge. And this, this, I cannot emphasize enough that countries that curtail women's reproductive rights are always on a trajectory toward authoritarianism and countries that do the opposite are on a trajectory toward democracy. That's not to say it's an irreversible trajectory in either case, but controlling reproductive rights is a a key way to control women and women make up 50% of the population, right? And so, so what that means is that women's, if women's bodies and women's lives become controlled by their reproduction, they are essentially chained to those conditions and chained toward chained to child rearing and they they no longer have control over their time or their futures and again i hate to pick on the late 19th century but this is why we fought that battle in the late 19th century is because women were um unable in many places to obtain abortions and they were they were uh performing self-abortions and dying in in really horrible numbers. And that matters when you get to the 20th century. And in fact, Roe versus Wade, people don't realize that the reason we got Roe v. Wade to begin with in 1973 was that by the 1960s, doctors, male doctors were looking around at the number of women who were uh, suffering um, illegal abortions in the 1960s were as many as 1.2 million a year. Wow! And they recognized it as a, as a health, as a public health issue. And the wording of that decision is really interesting because the wording of that decision doesn't say women should have this right. The wording of that decision says with the advice of their doctors, women should be able to make these decisions with the idea that it was going to stop this this horrific public health concern that people had. Now, what's interesting about that is that that was in the 1960s and states begin to decriminalize abortion and how states got the criminalization of abortion itself is interesting, but they started to decriminalize abortion and the, the um, United States government under Richard Nixon said to the uh, doctors, the veterans administration, I'm sorry, the the medical doctors, the what's the word army, army, military doctors, that's the word I want, that they should perform abortions, even in states that did not allow abortions at the time. So the government was moving in that direction. And in 1973, Roe versus Wade is actually written by a Republican appointed justice to the Supreme Court. There was this idea that among the Republicans that government should um, should stay out of families' rights to plan their futures and out of women's 
roles in society. So that's 1973. And, and people think that there's a backlash to the decision after 73. But in fact, the backlash, if you will, began in 1970, uh, 1970, before that decision was written, when Richard Nixon was afraid he was going to lose the midterm elections that year. And he was very eager to pick up Catholic Democrats. And his advisor, Pat Buchanan, said, well, the way to get them is with the abortion issue. So Nixon, who had given the order to the government military doctors to perform abortions, goes in front of the cameras and uses the language of those pro-life Catholic Democrats and, and starts to really hit the idea that the other side is uh, embracing things that will destroy traditional America. So if you remember the 1972 election, they tried to hit George McGovern as being the candidate of acid, amnesty, and abortion. But in those days, what the Republicans began to say was that abortion, they didn't talk about babies. They didn't talk about fetuses. They talked about women's libbers, that this was women's libbers who hated the family and wanted abortions and daycares instead of staying home with the family. So it became part of an identity of traditionalism versus women who had jobs and who, who wanted or needed to work outside the home, which they actually had to because of some of the policies of that, of that era. So reproductive rights it has been characterized now with the idea that it's all about saving babies to the point that you recently had a former president say that you know people who wanted reproductive rights would murder babies after they were born which is actually infanticide and is pretty a- illegal yeah but if you want to believe it i guess it's okay i mean you know there's a section that just wants to believe this true yeah so it's about a it's about it, it becomes about uh, women's roles in society as embracers of a traditional world or a modern world. And it's couched in language that makes it seem like the protection of babies. But, you know, the, the extraordinary inconsistency on that front among those making that argument should make it really clear it's not the truth. Yeah, And you said the word control probably 10 times there, which I think is pretty clear. But like, let me just highlight, like, it's about control, specifically controlling women. It is. And I think it's important for people to realize you talk about how things have changed in the two years since you started doing this podcast. And one of them is the growing strength, although it's still a tiny minority, but the growing strength of those people who embrace what Viktor Orban of Hungary calls illiberal democracy or Christian democracy. And that's what ties together the book burning and the trans bans and the anti-LGBTQ stuff and the um, the, the anti-abortion yeah. stuff. All of those things are an attempt to impose radical evangelical Christian values on society with the argument that the idea of equality before the law, the idea that everybody should be equal, has destroyed human virtue. And the way to return that is to bring radical Christianity into our society to dominate our government and to dominate people. And going back to reproductive rights, a piece of that, you know, you hear all these things about should a, should a 10-year-old have to, it seems crazy to somebody like me that a 10-year-old should have to bear a rapist's baby. But part of that argument is that it's central to recreate virtue, to have people suffer and to have people sacrifice for the greater good. So they are imposing the idea that children should sacrifice for this baby. Ultimately, it would be better for them. But I would love to point out here that they never want themselves to sacrifice. Yes. It's always other people who are supposed to be making that sacrifice. And, you know, I'm happy to follow somebody's logic when they're the ones saying, I'm making this sacrifice and this I'm setting an example. I'm willing to consider this. But I cannot tell you at 60 years old how much I have lost patience with sacrifice is a virtue. So why don't you go ahead and do it? Yeah, be my guest. I, I would like to say, you know, in the correlation versus causation, Jasmine, I actually think there might be something uh, maybe a little bit to that because I am married to a policy nerd. And one of the things he always talks about with Ukraine is why now or, you know, a year ago, more than a year ago, why now? I mean, the answer was because Ukraine was becoming more West and the more Ukraine had an opportunity to look to the West and see something different, it was like moving further away from Putin. So I think that after four years of Trump and Trump lost, that they were really trying to cling on to the last the judiciary, which is which is where they had the opportunity 
to really make some of these laws to control women and to codify this. And especially, I mean, you know how it is in, in Georgia. You know how it is in states. It's not the will of the people. We know this is not the will of the majority of the people. But I, I have to ask you, Heather, I mean, do you think we're still at an inflection point? Are you optimistic about where we are right now? So you asked me that. And inflection points aren't a minute long. They <laughs> Something major could yeah. sometimes change things. But yeah, I think, I think the country is changing. And and I would point out that that people who are confident about their power do not have to pass draconian laws. Absolutely. You know that you're safe, you're going to stay in control. You don't bother because you know you're in charge. And and people ask me like, how can you stay hopeful in this moment? And And I look back at my old notes and I think I was freaking tearing my hair out during the George W. Bush administration when he started putting signing statements to say that on laws to say that he could decide what laws actually meant. And I remember talking to a group of people about that and they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, let's let's go to dinner. And and thinking you don't get that we're on this trajectory. And I am terrified by this trajectory. And now we're we're deep in the weeds for sure. We're we're in the thick of it, but people are now seeing it and saying, I'm not going to put up with this. So let's game that out. What does that look like when this many people now gun control legislation, for example, gun safety legislation, the numbers of people who want background checks last I checked were at 87 percent. That's not small. No, that's a consensus. <laughs> so 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 what do we do if they if they say, no, 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 we're going to have any gun you want anywhere Do the do 87 percent of us go? Oh, yeah, it's OK. I mean, no, I just I don't I can't do that math. I do think we're going into a period that is going to be very rocky. But if you look at at the the voters coming up, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they don't want any part of this crap. And, you know, the older people who do, they tend to be over 50 years old, the ones who adhere, for example, to Christian nationalism. I just looked at those numbers tonight. They're people over 50 years old. You know, the, the, the country is definitely changing. What worries me is that they will do so much damage in these next 10 years or so that it's going to take us forever and maybe never to recover, which is why things like the debt ceiling are so important. Don't let them crash this economy by driving it over a cliff, which is why all these other pieces are so incredibly important. So, So yes, I'm optimistic. Yes, we have the numbers. Those things will only matter if enough of us speak up. And yes, I would love to get us into a better place so I could actually get two unbroken nights sleep. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, I think we could all we all feel would all love way. that. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, uh, Heather, thank you. It's so important to hear this historical perspective of what we're going through right now in our country and in our states. And you know, I've been watching the chat, and you know, people are just like they all want a good night's sleep or two in a row. That would be great. Um, And so if you're a regular listener on the podcast, you know that we also talk to a troublemaker every week, Uh, someone who's doing something great in their local community or, you know, someone uh, that we want to highlight here on the podcast. So tonight, in honor of Mother's Day, we're going to be joined by Julie Womack of Red Wine and Blue and her daughter, Sydney. Hi. Hello. How's everybody doing? It's fun so far. Yes, thanks for joining us, both of you. Well, Julie, you're the chief organizing officer at Red Wine and Blue, uh, but like many of us, you haven't always been involved in politics. So what inspired you to get involved? Um, well, my kids, um, Sydney, her sister, Aww. and her brother. Um, so after the 2016 election, you know, I was one of those moms who was like, I vote, I pay attention, I know what's going on. And then that election happened, and I was like, oh, no, this is not the world that I want for my kids. This is not the world I want them to be raised in. This is not the world I want them to go out and get jobs and work. Um, So that just made me um, very motivated to start doing more at the local level. So we started organizing. We live in a conservative county north of Cincinnati. So um, there hadn't been a lot of organizing on um, the, I guess, the more progressive side of the aisle. And so we were like, we really want to make a difference. We want to stand up for our values. So we started organizing here. 
um, and we haven't stopped. So we've had a lot of success. We're still a work in progress, but we've, we've had a lot of success. That's awesome. So Sydney, what's it been like watching your mom get involved? Do the two of you talk politics a lot now? Yeah, it's been super cool to see just since 2016, like how involved she's gotten and like literally like building a career out of this, just like driven off of pure passion for what she like is interested in and like what she wants to do. And we do talk politics a lot, whether or not like the rest of our family wants to hear it, Um, (laughs) which has been really nice because I know she's like super well versed in it. So there's someone I can always go to to learn new things from and to just rant to if I want to. Yeah, she'll text me from college. I'll send her stuff when she's, you know, up at school. So we 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 keep uh, in touch about this a lot. Nice. I'm impressed. Sydney, I heard you planned a Black Lives Matter march in your conservative suburb in 2020. What was that like? Can you tell us about it? Um, it was interesting. It was an experience I'm very glad to have had. So we did it during the summer of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, and it was me and five other high school girls. And we did it entirely ourselves, which was very interesting. And we had never done anything else before, obviously. But it was super cool to see the turnout. We had around 1,200 people end up showing up, which was unexpected. We had no idea to gauge like how big the turnout would be. But it was very interesting. There were a lot of ups and downs, a lot of dealing with very crazy people, which was surprising because we were like 16, 17 years old. And you would think maybe they would be a little different towards high school girls, but they were definitely not. Um, But in the end, it was a super rewarding experience to have. And I'm glad that we did it. That's a great perspective. Thank you. What would you recommend for people who want to get involved at the local level? Like, where do you even start? Well, number one, you just got to You have to find your people. All right. So when when I started, I felt very alone because I lived in this pretty red community. I didn't really know anybody who felt like I did. And we weren't talking a lot of politics. And so we started a Facebook group and man, it took off. So all of a sudden we were like, oh, there are a lot of people here who feel like us. We are not alone. I love that. Yeah. So you definitely have to find your people. And there are, and I have now taught troublemaker trainings about doing this exact thing. And I have yet to meet a person who said to me, you know, I started a Facebook group and like two people joined and that was it. That's never the story. It is always my exact story. Hundreds of people have joined. Um, So you find your people and then you just start doing it. You just go out in the community. You start talking to your friends and neighbors. You start showing up at your school board meetings and your city council meetings. You start paying attention to who's running for office and make those phone calls. Like there's, there is so much work to do, but I do think you need that, the support of other people um, who have your back. I've heard that from so many women, a very similar story of, oh, I found a bunch of people on Facebook. I thought I was the only one. And it turns out my neighbor four down from me is, you know, she thinks like I do. So now we meet all the time and your kind of network just grows from there. I've heard that from so many women. So I know with a lot of what we've been talking about with, especially with schools, about banning books and CRT and DEI and now more attacks on higher education. It's a lot of adults talking about what young people should talk about or not talk about and what young people should read or not read. And I don't hear as much from young people about their perspective. Sydney, I would love to hear your perspective on what you think about all of these adults talking about what you should or shouldn't talk about or read. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I feel like obviously very personally connected to it because there are a lot of debates around things surrounding like my major in college and like a lot of the classes I take, a lot of the groups I'm involved in would be at risk of being taken away if they continue to try and push this agenda on us. Um, I have a whole scholarship. I go to Ohio State and it's a diversity scholarship. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. But my whole scholarship program would be at risk if they continue to try to censor and ban these types of things. So it's definitely very scary. And I don't know, just being a student and being a youth and understanding like how this works. Like I know that I want to learn these things. So it's very frustrating to have adults try to tell you what you should and should not be wanting to learn about. Like I know for myself what I do and do not want to learn. What's your major? I'm criminology and criminal justice studies, and I'm going to add a history minor. Yes. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have what may be like a really frivolous question. But when they say you can't read a book, does it make you want to read it more? For sure. 
Uh, to me, it's like I, I look at those lists and I've read most of the books on them, but there'll be one or two where I'm like, eh, I, I never it really never caught my interest. But I'm like, I'm going to go read that sucker right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I wondered if young people felt the same way, because it's not like those books aren't available elsewhere. Yeah, I think I feel that way for sure, because it's like, yeah, it sort of is like counterproductive if they're telling you to not do something, especially as like a teenager, like you kind of want to rebel anyway. You're like, oh, I might as well go read it. Then. Yeah, it's like, what are y'all hiding? I know. I mean, I've never felt cooler. Every time I hear a book is banned, I'm like, oh, I've totally read that. So I'm very edgy. I'm yeah. so edgy. Now. So I'm going to be totally rebellious and go read Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Julie, you know, um, I know that you are working with Red, Wine and Blue. So what's next on the horizon? Like, what are y'all working on right now? All right, you guys, we are so excited. So last Wednesday, we launched our Freedom to Parent campaign. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because we want everybody on this call to get involved. So start watching the chat for ways to sign up. But you guys have obviously been hearing about what we just talked about, book bans, you know, telling teachers what they can and cannot say. And it's all been done under the guise of so-called parental rights. Um, But what we know is that mainstream moms and dads, like, this is not about our rights as parents. This is actually taking away our rights and telling us what we can and cannot do. Um, And that is not how we prepare our kids for the 21st century, right? She's going to go out and work in a global economy. She has to be prepared for that. So what we're noticing is that politicians really aren't stepping up to push back against the so-called parental rights. So we're going to do it. All of us, everybody here, we are going to we are going to be the ones to go on the offense against this and call it out for what it is. Um, We are not going to be told by a very loud and vocal minority how to raise our kids. Um, We know that success is learning. Learning is not book bans. It's not censorship. It's not being told that there is no different uh, perspectives or there is no diversity in our society. That is not what we want. We want our kids to go to school and feel like you know what? I don't have to worry about an active shooter coming in. Like this is freedom, right? This is the freedom that we want as parents. So this is what the freedom to parent campaign is all about. We are going to increase our troublemaker training. So you guys can feel really confident going out talking about this, learning how to organize in your community. Uh, We are going to have, we already have a band book club. We're going to launch a little band book club so we can talk about kids books and what's actually being banned. We're going to have ask me anything sessions. There's a lot of disinformation online in case you guys haven't noticed, especially (laughs) around all this legislation around you know, anti-trans legislation, but I know people have a lot of questions, right? Because it is confusing. And if it's not a subject you're really well-versed and you may not understand all of this. So we are going to have Ask Me Anything sessions to come learn about, you know, what it means to be transgender, non-binary. What's it like, you know, if you're raising a child uh, of color in a community that's majority white and you're getting all these attacks on education and your history being taught in schools, we're going to have these real conversations. Um, So please sign up for updates, join the movement. We want you to be part of this because together we are going to become the loud majority who is speaking out about this stuff. Oh, I love it. Julie and Sydney, thank you so much for joining us, um, for being our troublemakers and for sharing a little bit about what you do. It's very meaningful and I appreciate you coming in, obviously talking about freedom to parent because that is exciting. Thank you for having thank us. You. And thank you to her for actually volunteering to do it. <laughs> thank <so>. you. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Well, we are just about at the end of our special 100th episode celebration. But if you're a regular listener, you know that we always close with a toast to joy, sharing something positive with each other and our listeners. It's my favorite part. It's become such a staple of the podcast that we just added a toast to joy champagne flute to our merch store. Very excited about that. So with that, Jasmine, what is your toast to joy this week? Yeah, I get to go first. All right. Uh, So my toast to joy this week, honestly, is to a super spontaneous but fun Mother's Day with my daughter. She just was like, hey, mom, like I don't have a whole bunch of money. Her, Her dad gave her a little bit of money to spend on me for Mother's Day. And so she's like, you know, let's go downtown and just like walk around downtown. And I'm like, yeah, cool. So we go downtown and then we happen to see this big billboard that says like free admission for mom to the college football hall of fame. Now I've lived in Atlanta literally my whole life, except for four years when I went off to college. 
So I have not done all the little touristy things downtown. So I was like, hey, let's just go in there. And it was so fun. I'm a football fan. For those who listen to the pod, you know, I love sports. And so we went in and they had mimosas and massages. And then we went to the museum. I got to sing fight song karaoke. Wait, wait, wait. They had mimosas and massages in the football museum? Yes. Yes. It was for Mother's Day. I know. Okay. I know. Isn't it crazy? All right. Yeah. I might I might think about sports a little more. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I think it was just like, you know, they were trying to bring people in, but it was a really good time. I really enjoyed spending the day with my daughter. I don't know. I just, it was not necessarily what I thought I would be doing on Mother's Day when I woke up that morning, but I'm just so glad I did it. So that is my toast to joy this week. Oh, that's awesome. We did the opposite where all of the dads took all the kids away from us and all the women (laughs) got together for brunch with no kids. Oh, well, that actually sounds really amazing. (laughs) Although I will say my kid's a teenager now. So she's like old enough that we can like do things and talk and she's got a little bit of money in her pocket. So yeah, that's true. So Amanda, what's your toast to joy this week? So not to be too cheesy, but I was thinking about all of the hundred episodes that we've had, and I would love to do my toast to joy to all of the troublemakers that we have had on the podcast and just all the troublemakers in general, because when I think about how are we going to make this inflection point really move us forward? How do we move forward? Yes. Like the politicians are important and the people out there with the platform are important, but the troublemakers are really the ones who are important. It is all of the people making all of the little decisions to show up, to talk with people. All of those little things matter so much and they build up into a collective that can move this whole country. So my toast to joy today is to all of the troublemakers out there. And I know we have a lot of troublemakers here today. All right, right. Heather, are you ready for your toast to joy? I am. And I have all sorts of, of like family things or public things I could say, but I'm actually going to say something personal for a change that is really important to me that um, is, I'm not usually out there saying I did something, I did something, I did something, but I did something. And, uh, and it has to do with you all in a sense that I was, I was starting it a hundred episodes ago. And that is that this today at one o'clock, I finished everything to do with my new book. I am done. There's nothing left to do. Congratulations. It has been, I'm, I, I just, you can tell, I just, I got no words. It has been such a slog and I don't even care how it comes out or anything else, but But also cliffhanger, a book is coming out. Yes. Which is fine. And it'll be, yeah, that's fine. But the accomplishment of finishing an expletive book is just, <laughs> I, and, and it, and I finished and I, I did some grading and then I came over to do this and I'm like, I'm like, so exhausted, not, not sleepy exhausted, but just sort of, uh, that I'm sitting there I like, know that feeling. I could just sleep on this table right <laughs> I know now. That feeling. So I am, I am the kind of joy that I've only had uh, six times before in my life tonight, because this is my seventh book. Wow. So I'm happy to share it with everybody, with you all and with everybody here. I'm so Aww. glad you shared that with us. That's awesome. I know. Do you have like a big to-do list where you like scratched it off your to-do list of like, I did a book. Done. <laughs> no, I should do that actually. You, should. you just start it now. You could write it. I just all time write it and just cross it off right away. It feels really good. <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> no, but you know what? What I do do is when the the last month or so of a big project like that, I keep a running list of things that need to be done, ah. like like clean the bathroom, whatever, because otherwise you actually run the risk of of you lose such a big thing out of your life, you can get really depressed by it. So in fact, one of the things I did this afternoon was clean the bathroom. Yeah, keeping it real. How about, how about you, Rachel? <laughs> well, my toast to joy this week, I thought a lot about what it would be. And I, I think um, it's to the female role models in my life, both my Aww. grandmothers, one of whom is still alive. She was born in 1926. And my mom, who has passed away, um, my two aunts, but just um, the strength they gave me. Uh, you know, both my grandmothers born in Oklahoma during and and raised during the depression and had such tremendous work ethic. They were the greatest generation, but they were, they taught me a work ethic, um, not just a work ethic, but a, uh, a perseverance that I think very much lives in me and I'm so grateful for it. So um, 
that there, my sister, I guess is a little bit, uh, a little emotional. Um, and my mom, who, by the way, Jasmine, my dad was a football coach a long time ago, but always still very involved. In, and actually at the end of his life, he went back to teaching and coaching. But um, one of my brother's friends one time said, your mom knows more about football than my dad. So <laughs> she totally <laughs> Um, that's she, probably me. <laughs> she she knew a lot about football. She could and, and much more than me. So in fact, when we were we I, I like I said I saw Katie and Amanda this this weekend and we were in Columbus. Sorry, Cleveland, Cleveland. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, and the players for the Angels they were playing a baseball game and they were in the elevator with us. And my daughter asked them if they were playing there to play a football game in May. Oh, so uh, my parents would be a little bit appalled, but anyway, that's okay. Uh, everyone has has their own life. That's okay, everyone has I their mean, strengths. Yes, I think Heather might tell us a little the history. I think every generation is unsatisfied with how the current generation is parenting. Like we will at one point be unsatisfied with the next generation. Yes, but it, but isn't that's absolutely true? But isn't this cool that we have both the past and the Rachel's past and the present? with Jasmine's daughter and, you know, and the, the incredible moment we're in with the idea of people accomplishing things and, and everybody across the country participating. So it's almost a kind of a perfect microcosm of the entire podcast in this that. moment, which is really cool. Not planned out ahead of time. I have to no. say, it's not on my no, own, no. Which, is, which is really cool. It's, I mean, we have to be willing to change. We have to, you know, we have to get out there and some people are really afraid to change. And I think so much of what we see in this moment, in this inflection point is because people are very, very afraid of change and they don't know what it's going to look like on the other side of that. And we have to help them see it's going to be okay. It's going to be great. It's not just yes. going to be okay. It's going to be great. Yes. It is. It is. Right. You're right. Is, yes. Yes. I mean, just allow yourself that moment. It's going to be amazing. And I can speak to that personally. Um, on that note. Okay. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us today. You, you made this special moment for us so special for being part of it and being here. Whether you're a regular listener or this is your first time hearing the pod, we're just so thrilled that you joined us. It's been an honor and a pleasure to talk with Amanda and Jasmine and all our amazing guests for 100 episodes, and I can't wait to see what the next 100 will bring. If you'd like to know more about the Suburban Women Problem or Red Wine and Blue, you can visit redwine.blue. Thanks again for joining us, and as we say always, we will see you again next week on another episode of the Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red, Wine, and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.